If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 3. Revelation chapter 3. We have been going through the, uh, the book of Revelation. And again, just as a final kind of statement here for a few weeks, I guess. Um, we've looked at Revelation chapter 1 verse 19 as being the, the basic outline that Jesus Christ has given to John about the things that he was supposed to write about. He was supposed to write about the things which have been, the things which are, and the things which shall be. And so you can see that, again, we've been talking about that those are the three messages. There was the message to John himself. There was the message to the churches, which we've been going through, and the message of the future, which, Lord willing, we will be getting to very shortly. Um, beginning next week, Lord willing, we will um, begin looking at a, a brief um, synopsis of um, biblical prophecy. And so we're going to start next week looking at from uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, and going from there, and then into the Old Testament to look at some basic prophecies as we go. But now, today, we want to finish up looking at um, Jesus' messages to the churches. And so, as we came through it, we looked at the seven churches that he's written to. We saw the church of Ephesus, the church of Smyrna, the church of Pergamos, the church of Thyatira, the church of Sardis, the church of Philadelphia, and today we want to look at the church of Laodicea. Now, again, I haven't mentioned this verse at the end of each one of these, but the reality is at the end of each one of these statements, there's been a, a as we've looked at the, the outline, it's been similar, but to the, at the very end of each of these churches, Jesus has made a statement. Does anybody know what it is? Though I haven't preached on it at all. Whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so my prayer has been that you have been listening with a spiritual ear. And so I want to challenge you, again, that the statement, as we've talked about before, that these were seven literal churches, but that the application of the message to these churches apply to us today. And so as we consider the church of Laodicea, many um, people who look at this as an era type thing, that this is uh, looking at seven eras of the churches, all agree, makes sense, with this era, and that is because they're always the, the last era, right? And that the era that we're living in must be the age of what? The church of Laodicea. And so in many churches, you would hear this message come from the perspective that this re refers to our church today. Not just Family Bible Church, but the church of Jesus Christ today is described by the, the, the church of the Laodicea. And it's interesting because it really does describe many churches today. But I would say predominantly... Because we look at things from a, an American background. We look at it from, a, from our own uh, glasses. I think that if we were in other um, countries where they're dying for their faith, and that they're not considering themselves filthy rich, this probably doesn't apply as much as it does to us in the United States, where we have taken over the God of materialism, and we do struggle with worshiping mammon rather than God himself. And so, to the church of Laodicea then, we will begin to look at the message that Jesus has to them. And we're going to use the same, same uh, outline as we've been using. Christ's introduction, Christ's commendation, Christ's challenge, and then finally Christ's promise. And so we want to look beginning here in chapter 3, where G, uh, Steve has already read, beginning in verse 14, where Jesus begins to introduce himself. As he does for each one of these things, he says, Now unto the church of, and this one is Laodicea, right. And he says, These things says... First of all, the Amen. Jesus calls himself the Amen. Now, what's important here is that 
In this church of Laodicea, let me just state this right up front, there are just, this whole thing is rife with word pictures. Okay? And so I want to try to bring out these word pictures as we go through so that you can really kind of get a glimpse of what Jesus is saying here. Because a lot of things, you, you don't get it unless you, you get the, the word picture that's behind it. And so Jesus says right off the bat, he is the amen, the amen. And the amen is, is a Hebrew word, okay? And so it comes into the, to the Greek only coming from the Hebrew because it was the Jewish word. And amen refers to something that is steady, true, and unchanging, okay? And so Jesus says that he is the one who is steady, true, and unchanging. His message is steady. His message is true. His message is unchanging. And his testimony will be as well, because he brings to it his second illustration. He says that he is also the faithful and true witness. Now, this is important, because these two things tie together. The, the city of Laodicea, comes the, the name of the Laodicea, comes from two Greek words. Now, it literally comes from the name of a queen that this is named after. But her name comes from two Greek words. It comes from the word Laos, which you've heard of the country, Laos, right? It's the same spelling, the L-A-O-S. Does anybody know what Laos means? Laos? It means people. Okay? It just means a people. And, and it comes from the word decay, decay, which means right or righteous. And so these are the right people. These were the just people. These were the people of righteousness, if you would. Okay? And so it's kind of like a judicial statement. These were just people. Okay? And so you've got to kind of picture what Jesus is saying here then. Jesus is saying to the church of the people of justness. Okay? This is, the, this is coming from him who is Omain, the one who is steady, true, unchanging in his testimony. This is coming from the one who is what? The faithful and true witness. Now, we want to look at this because, first of all, the, the nature of Christ's witness is that the, the term witness by itself is the Greek word uh, martyr, which is where we get our word martyr from. Okay? It literally is that word, martis. And so if you take the, the, the move, make it an M, an A, an R, that looks like a P, but it's really a row, it's an R. A T, the upsilon becomes a Y, okay? And then you have the sigma, so martis. But it changed the, the sigma to a, another R, and you get a word martyr. Okay? And a martyr originally was one who died for his testimony. Okay? Not just for his faith. It was a matter of faith. But he died because of the testimony that he gave. He gave a true testimony. Right? And so, are you willing to die for the name of Christ? And so, we talked a few weeks ago about Balthasar Hummeyer, who was joined the, the Middle Ages. He was an Anabaptist. And Balthasar Hummeyer was arrested numerous times by the, the Catholic Church. And he was placed on a stretching rack and told to recant. And so as he was put on the stretching rack, he decided that he didn't want to be any taller or have arms and legs that were any longer than they were. And so he recanted. And he denied. And he went back out and he began to preach Christ again. And so he was arrested again and he was brought back in. And he was put upon the rack and he, he denied again. And so finally the third time, he was arrested, and he was brought back in, and he said, I cannot deny he who has never denied me. And he died. And uh, so, that sounds anticlimactic, doesn't it? And he died. Anyways, but you can kind of, I don't need to go into the details of it, but you can, we can kind of picture that, okay? But he was a martyr, okay? Why do we call him a martyr? What did he die for? He died for his testimony. 
for his um, refusal to recant what he knew was true. Okay? Now, the word martyr is, is an official judicial term. It is the individual who, when you go to a, a courtroom, would be brought up and put upon the martyr stand, the witness stand. And so this is an official presenter of judicial testimony. So if you were riding down the road and you saw an accident occur, and somebody wanted to take it to the claims court or whatever, you would potentially be called in as a what? A martyr. Yeah. As a witness. Now, that kind of seems weird, doesn't it? But you would be brought in as a witness to give testimony to what you knew. This is the word in Acts 1.8 that Jesus says that after the Holy Spirit's come upon you, you will be witnesses for me. Not that you might be witnesses, but that you will be witnesses for me. And so it's an interesting thing that every day as you walk about, you are a martyr for Christ. You don't have to die for his name. Now, some of us may eventually die for his name. But in a sense, by the Greek term, we ought to be what? Witnesses. We ought to be martyrs. We're supposed to be those who bear or present judicial testimony about the validity of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus literally was God in the flesh? That he walked on the earth? That he died? And that he rose again bodily? If you do... That's what you're called upon to give testimony to. If you believe it, it's there. Now, you may not have been there to see it, but once you believe by faith, faith is the what? It's the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things unseen. So though I don't see it, Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet what? Believe. Okay? So we're called upon to be witnesses. Okay? Now Jesus says that he is the presenter of judicial testimony. Now, this is going to be uh, important because he says as well that his witness is faithful and true. Now, again, this is a Hebrew term. To the Jews, the Jews would understand this. What Jesus just said was that his testimony was chesed and emet. Chesed and emet. Which is important because chesed, the first word, okay, is the, the word which means the faithful, loving, kindness, of God to the objects of this covenant. But basically it is the faithful loving kindness. Many times this word is true, translated as faithfulness. Many times it's translated as mercy. Sometimes it's loving kindness. But it means to be steady and unchanging again. Like amen. Okay? And the word emet, emet means to be true. Kind of like if you're taking a plumb line. If you're, if you're doing, um, um, if you're doing carpentry. And you have the plumb line that comes down. The plumb line is to do what? To show the trueness of something. Okay? And so that's what Jesus is. Jesus says that his testimony is chesed and emet. It is faithful and true. Okay? And so it's a Hebrew expression of trustworthiness. Now what's interesting is that you have on your sermon note sheet a lot of verses for this. Okay? And I'm not going to go through all of them. We're just going to look at one of them right now. Exodus 34, verse 5 and 6. When Yahweh decides to, to bring himself down to Moses and show himself to Moses, he reveals himself and his character by one critical statement. And he says, Now Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him, that is Moses, there, and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh himself passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh El, Yahweh God, 
Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in chesed and emet. That Yahweh is the one who is abounding in chesed and emet. And so he is the one who is faithful and true. And so this is important because what God says is, the impact of the statement is, what I'm about to declare to you is what? It's true. What I'm about to declare is a true testimony. It is the witness before God regarding your church. So as you people from Laodicea, you, do, you see yourself as the people of justice, that you see yourself as just and righteous people, so in other words, you have this truth that is about you, understand that what I'm about to tell you is the truth. Is a faithful and true testimony or witness about you. So what is it? Well, he says as well, let me find, finish it up, he says that he, as well, it is the beginning of the creation of God, and this is just a quick thing, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, you have a lot of verses on your sermon note sheet, so you can do some more study on this, okay? We could do a little rabbit trail here, but I don't want to go there. But the word beginning here is the word RK, and many people refer, look at Jesus being, like from Colossians chapter 1, as the firstborn of creation, and they try to talk about Jesus being a created being, and not the creator itself. But what's interesting here is that Jesus calls himself the RK. He's the RK of the creation of God. And the word RK can be translated as ruler or head. Or it can be translated as beginning. The idea is if you consider um, like a source of water. You have the, the head or the beginning of the water. Does that make sense? That is the RK. It's the word where we get archaeology coming from. The study of the beginnings or the study of the sources, the study of the chief things. And so the chief priests, the chief priests are referred to as the arche priests. They're the rolling priests. And so you have countless verses on your sermon note sheets where you can look up where arche is translated as beginning and arche is translated as ruler. Okay? And so you can consider how it is, but bringing the concept together of what arche means, Jesus is he who is the originating source in ruler of creation. He's not the beginning of creation, i.e. like a created being. He's not the first thing that was created. Rather, the term means that he is actually the ruler of creation. He is the one in which creation actually sprouted from, and he is the one then who oversees and rules over that creation. Okay? Now, who does that make him to you? God. Okay? Pretty cool stuff. So anyways, so there's a lot of ways that Jesus describes himself as God without saying, literally, I'm God. Okay? Now, Christ's condemnation, commendation to them, is actually a condemnation as well. And then we saw this in one of the earlier churches. And he starts off saying, I know your work. But he didn't stop there. It would be nice for this church if he had just stopped right there. I know your work. And then just said, okay, let's go on. Because he goes on and says what? I know that you are neither hot or neither hot or what? Cold. You're neither cold nor hot. Rather, you are lukewarm. Now, many people, when they receive this, there's a confusion in this because they because something to be hot means that it's zealous, it's fervent, it's 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 really on fire for the Lord. And they say, what is Jesus really saying? He's saying, listen, I really rather that you'd be totally apathetic or totally on fire, but this having a foot on this side of the fence and a foot on this side of the fence. This doesn't wash. It's not what he's saying at all. 
Rather, it's both hot and cold in this picture are good. Okay? Again, you need to know the background of Laodicea. Now, Laodicea, now some of you may not be able to see this, okay? Um, I'm up close and it's hard for me to see, okay? And we're going to show a closer up picture in a second. But Laodicea is here, is that red dot right there. You can see that, okay? Everybody see that? Right there. And right next to it are two other cities. There's Hierapolis and Colossae. You know Colossae because there's Paul's letter to the Colossians, okay? But many times we don't hear of Hierapolis, okay? But Hierapolis was famous, and let's go to this next one so you can see it a little bit closer up, okay? Hierapolis was famous for its hot springs, okay? They had spas that were there, you know, like we have them in the United States, and people like to go to these hot springs and these spas because there is this medicinal kind of thing that's there, and they think that they can go and they can sit in the spas and they can feel better. Colossi, right there on the, the edge of the Lycus River, was known for its water, its cool, refreshing water. If you wanted to have a nice place to have cool, refreshing water, it was Colossi. Laodicea, on the other hand, was known for having no water source. Rather, they got their water from Hierapolis and Colossae. These are aqueducts. And so, anybody know what, what this is up here in the top left corner? Bridge. It's a bridge, not a bridge. Waterfall. No, you're close though. You see them in all the high places around here. It's a water tower. Yeah. Now, they didn't have the metal and the big opening things, but this is a... It's a, it's a uh, concrete, if you would. It's a, it's a stone water tower. And so it was fed by gravity. You can just kind of see where the aqueducts would have been coming down here, coming down the side. And so as they needed water in a certain area of the city, they would open up one of the aqueducts. And so, but they would have these, these aqueducts here that ran through the city, but they also ran from, all the way from um, Hierapolis, and they ran from Colossae. And so coming from from Hierapolis, you had this boiling water, okay? And coming from Colossae, you had this nice, cool water. But both, as they got to uh, Laodicea, were what? Were lukewarm. They were pukey. And so what Jesus is saying, he says, listen, you're neither one of these things. He says, if I go to Hierapolis, I'm going to have what? I'm going to have true medicinal uh, springs and these hot spas which, which will re refresh me uh, in a medicinal kind of way. If I go down to Colossae, I'm going to get this cool refreshing water that'll, that'll make me, give me kind of some, some enlivenment. Okay? But rather, you guys are like your water. You're blah. You're... Pfft. I mean, honestly, when you get water out of your tap, many of your taps, you can get kind of cool water. But most people still like to do what? Add ice. Add ice to it. Not many people want to just drink water out of the tap. You're either going to take water out of the tap and put it through the, uh, the, the coffee pot or whatever, if you've got a water pot, anyways, to heat up the water for your tea, or you're going to put ice on it to make it cold. Jesus says, you guys are like tap water. You guys are like water coming out of that water tower that's been sitting there with the sun baking on it. It's... Bleh. It's nothing. He says, I wish that you were like the water of Hierapolis. That, that when people came to you for water, 
for thirst that you were able to minister to them like the water of Hierapolis. Or that you were like the water of Colossae and you were able to give them a, a cool glass of water in a sense to refresh them. But your teaching and your lifestyle is nothingness. It's just lukewarm. It's blah. And because it's blah, I'm going to what? I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Now, he goes on now with his challenge, and he says to him, because of this, because you are blah, because you're nothing, it's not, I'm about ready to spew you out of your mouth, here's my challenge to you. First of all, you need to recognize your wretchedness. You need to recognize the wretchedness of your situation. Look at verse, um, verse 17. It is because you say what? I am rich. And have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And then he goes on. Okay, we'll talk about that in a moment. First of all, he says you need to recognize the rest of the situation. Another fun thing about this letter, like I said, that Jesus is just using tons of word pictures, is that the city of Laodicea was known for being the center of three different trades, if you would. First of all, they were the center of commerce or financial institutions. They were an extremely rich city. In fact, in 60 AD, there was an earthquake there in Laodicea, and Rome came to lend assistance to help them rebuild. And the leaders of Laodicea spurned them and said, keep your money. We'll build ourselves. And they did, because they had all the, the, the resources that were there. So they were a very rich city. You get it? They were also known like Augusta, as a very uh, a center of medicine, or med a medical center of the area. And so they had two schools of medicine, actually, there in the area, which we're going to get the ISAVs up from just in a moment, okay? And so they were known as that, but they were also known for their textile industry. Again, in a sense, um, Augusta used to be known for the textile industry a lot as well. And so they were known for their textile industry. And so the three areas in which Jesus comes to this church and says to them, you think you're rich, you think you got it all, are the three areas in which Laodicea was known for. He says, you think you're what? You think you're rich, but you don't know that you're really what? You're really poor. Secondly, you think you, you're, uh, you got great sight, you got great health, you got great medicine going on there, but you're really what? You're blind. And you think you got all the world's best textiles but you're really naked. Now bring that spiritually, because he was, wasn't necessarily talking physically to them, but he was using the physical to bring a spiritual thing. Spiritually speaking, how would we think that we are rich? How would we think that we're rich, spiritually speaking? In the eyes of the world. We know the Bible, okay, that we know it and we can quote it, okay, that, that's one thing that Pharisees would, would, would be that one very, very clearly. I want to challenge you with the, the materialism of the church as well. There's a balance, Steve and I were just talking about this this week, you know, that there, there's a balance, we are the temple of God, and that God did decree that he wanted his temple to be what? Ornate, you know, special. You know, he didn't tell us to, to build a very blasé temple for himself, did he? 
I mean, he wanted it gold covered and everything. So there's, there's, a, there's a balance that we need to approach. However, many of us in American culture today really go off the other side of the balance, and that is we're not necessarily looking for ornateness for God. We're looking at ornateness and comfort for, for ourselves. And so we become very focused on the riches and the materialism of the world. And we take the rudiment principles of the world and we apply it to ourselves. And so, you know, honestly, if you came here, and this is picking on you because I can't pick on people out there, right? Okay? So picking on ourselves. If you came in here and we were meeting in folding chairs, okay? And not, not nice padded chairs, but in folding chairs, would you still be here? Don't tell me yes or no, but just ask yourself that. Is, you know, is it... Is the, is the aviance of the place important to you? Well, for many people, it is. Music. The richness of the music. There are a lot of things that we look at right now as far as, far as things that are rich. Rich according to the material, if you would, realm. Okay? What about the concept of being blind or that being healthy? I think this goes toward what you're saying as well, Laura, about the, the word. Thinking that we have the word, you know. And it's amazing to me how many people I talk to who claim to be believers who don't know the word. They have it. I mean, of all people today, I would venture to say you all have at least one copy of the Bible, probably closing on a half a dozen copies in, in your house. You probably have more versions than just one. Okay? And so the question is, how much do you use them? We talk about how rich we are and how healthy we are as far as the word goes. And so in Sunday school we talked about um, healthy teaching and healthy doctrine, if you would. The hygienic thing that we talked about from um, the men's breakfast a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. What Paul talks about to Timothy and he says that this is healthy doctrine or healthy teaching, and that is that it focuses on the Word of God, that it comes from the Word of God, and that it points you toward godliness. If the teaching that you receive isn't coming from the Word of God, and it's not focusing you, pointing you toward godliness, then it's not healthy doctrine. Well, there's a lot of teaching that's going on out there, and there's a lot of seemingly healthy churches, but if you go into them, and I was talking to, I think it was Daniel, was I asking about this on Tuesday, I was talking about it would be fun to have one Sunday a month off for me. Because I, I'm really tunnel-visioned. You've got to understand that I went to the same church for 23 years, and then I got saved. And then after that, I went to the same church. And so I went to seminary, and then I was in one church. And then I came back, and I became assistant pastor of the church that I was saved through the ministry of. And then I became the senior pastor of that church. And then I started this church. So I really don't have a big perspective of what's going on. And it blows me away when some of you come in and others that I've met who come in and say it's refreshing because there isn't many churches out there teaching the Word of God. And I think, surely, that can't be true. That they've got to be preaching the Word. But I remember being out in St. Louis for seven months and I remember trying to find a church for my, for my family to go to. And I went to the one that I thought would be the most conservative and the guy was giving a, a psychology lesson. You know, I don't, honestly, I don't remember us cracking the Bible once. And, and it was a, well, straight up, it was an independent Baptist church. It was where I thought at least the Bible was going to be, whether or not I agreed with the style of preaching, it didn't matter. And so it, it was amazing to me. So I, I would love that sometime 
to be able to just go around to the different churches in the area so I have a better concept of what's really happening in Augusta. Because from my perspective, this is the Bible Belt, which means that what? The Bible must be being taught. But from what people tell me over and over again, it's it's not. And so, so there in, in Laodicea, they say they're rich. They say they have great eyesight. They can, they can really see. They have great, good health. But they also thought that they were clothed very nicely as well. And so the clothing that we're supposed to be clothed with is what? The righteousness of Christ. And so we bring that again spiritually then to us, and we look at our own righteousness. Remember the Laodiceans? They were the just people. They were the right people. And so many of times we as well can look to our own righteousness, our own clothes. But the Bible says that my righteousness is like a what? It's a filthy rag. And that's exactly what Jesus in a sense tells them. He says, man, you guys are naked. He says, you think you're, you're dressed ornately, but you're, you're really naked. And so he turns around and says, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. So, you need to receive from me the things that you need. Well, what are the things that you need? Well, you need real riches. You need to get your gold. You need to acquire your gold from me that you may be truly rich. Now, again this morning we talked a little bit about the, the health and wealth prosperity gospel a little bit, you know, where um, there are those who, who want to teach prosperity. Is Jesus saying that literally we should go and receive gold bullion from him? What's he talking about? How, what, am I, what gold am I supposed to be acquiring from him? The word, okay, the word, that, that's, that's there as well. But make the analogy as well from, from the things of materialism. Okay, man does not live by bread alone, I, I agree with that, but by the very words of God. But I think he's talking as well about true riches. Okay? And I think he's talking about treasures in, in heaven, that you can lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where the rust and the moth doth what? Corrupt. But rather he's told us to do what? Lay up treasures in heaven. And I think that's the, the gold that we're asked to get. I think that we're, we're the, the gold that's really going to last, because think about it, even the gold on the earth is going to one day what? It's going to perish. The heavens, the earth's going to what? It's going to burn up. And it's going to be replaced with a new one. So do you think only the gold on the earth is going to remain? No, it's going to burn up. And so I think that what he's referring to is true gold. Again, that you can be truly rich. And so the true riches is coming from the true riches that you get from God. And those are the treasures that you can lay up eternally. Because, again, the cliche is that you've never seen a what behind the cask, or behind the, uh, the, um, the hearse. You never saw a moving van. You never saw a U-Haul behind, behind, the, um, behind the hearse. Because you can't take it with you. And so only what's already there is going to be there. Secondly, he tells them, you need to get your garments from me. Forget the textile mills that are all around you. Worry about being clothed with my clothes. And he says that I will clothe you with what? What kind of clothing does he want to clothe them with? White. white garments. That's exactly right. And that he wants to have these white garments. And the white, again, we talked about this a few weeks ago, is the picture of purity. But it's also the picture of, of victory as well. And it's also the picture of royalty from that perspective. Okay, being set apart. And so he's saying, listen, take from me the white robe that I'm going to give you. Now what's important about, 
again, it's a great picture here, okay? What's, what's the difference between taking Jesus' garments and the white robes and, and the robes of the world? What does he say there? He says, if you take my robes, what will it do for you? It will cover up the shame of your nakedness. You've got all the robes of the world, as, nor, as ornate as they are, but, you really, but you've forgotten that it really is the emperor's new suit. Somebody sold you a bag of goods. And you're walking around parading yourself in your birthday suit. You're naked. You don't even know it. Everybody's told you, look great. You look great, O king. But you're walking around naked. And you don't realize your own shame. But buy from me a true garment. The white garment. Which when you put it on yourself, not on yourself, but when you're clothed with it, it'll cover the shame of your nakedness. Adam and Eve were in the garden. Adam was created first. Eve was taken from his side. And it said, for this reason the two shall... The, the, the man shall leave his father and his mother. The two shall be cleaved together and become one flesh. Right? And it says, and they were both naked and they were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. They were naked and they were not ashamed. But then instantly we read in chapter 3 of Genesis that the servant comes and talks to Eve. She looks at the fruit. She sees that it's good to eat. She takes of it. She bites it. She gives it to her husband. He eats of it. And the very first thing that happens is that their what? Their eyes were opened up. They knew they were, they were naked. And they were ashamed. We know they're ashamed because they went and made themselves coverings to cover up their nakedness. Isn't it interesting? So the picture is the concept of the sin. And when Jesus comes by his blood, by the blood of Jesus Christ, by his his righteousness, we receive then His righteousness to us. My garment is a filthy rag. It's got a bunch of holes in it. But the righteousness, the garment that I get from Jesus Christ, is one that is complete. One that is pure white. It's as though it came through the um, refiner's fire or the linen's um, the, my mind is blanking. The launderers, uh, Malachi, help me out somebody. The launderers soap. It was cleansed with the launderers soap. And so that's the picture that we have um, coming from, from, from Christ here. And so he says, sec thirdly then, you need to get ointment from me that you may truly see. Now again, Laodicea was known for their, the, being the center of medical. And what's really interesting is that they actually had coins whose... On the coin were some ophthalmologists. They were known for the discovery of these ointments that theoretically would help their eyes get better. And so Jesus comes and says, listen, you need to get your eye salve, you need to get your ointment from me. That may help you see physically, but when you come to me, I will help you see spiritually. The Word of God says that spiritual things must be discerned how? Spiritually.
spiritually. And it says that spiritual things are, these things of the scripture are, are foolishness to who? The natural man. Why? Because he can't see it. He can't discern it. It can only be discerned spiritually. And so, you may read the word of God and not get the truths that are in it because you're not seeing it through the eyes of Christ. I mentioned a few weeks ago about um, commentaries and such. And I'm not necessarily opposed to commentaries. I'm not opposed to the study guides. But I think that we like to take the place of the Holy Spirit with our anointed ones. Again, God has given us teachers to help us to grow. But Jesus promised us an anointing. Jesus promised that when he would leave, that he would send the Holy Ghost. He would send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to us. Does anybody know what the jobs of the Comforter is? Daniel, what would you say? Okay, he convicts the world of righteousness, judgment, and sin. Okay, so the Holy Spirit overriding job is to convict the world of sin. Okay? Okay? And so, what else is his job? Well, we know from Ephesians 1, it's to seal the believer. Right? What else is the job of the Holy Spirit? Empower the believer. Yes. Gives us, gives us special empowerment. Right? He's supposed to come and to lead me into all truth. The job of the Holy Spirit, why he comes to reside within me, is to lead me into all truth. That's what Jesus said. He's going to be my discipler. In a sense, God has placed in the, in the body apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the equipping of the saints into the work of the ministry. But ultimately, the job is the job of who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to, to transform the child of God to look like the Son of God. Does that make sense? Because God's purpose in your life is that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. How does he do that? By using the word of God through the ministry of the spirit of God. And so, if you were arrested and thrown in jail, solitary confinement, but you're allowed to have a Bible, do you know what? Your growth should not stagnate. Rather, your growth should increase because now, God would take away the crutches that you use to reward your growth. Some of you use me as a crutch. And again, we talk about that really, honestly, all you get is like a baby bird getting the regurgitated worm from the mama bird. And I'd rather eat a steak than a what? Processed steak any day, if you get the picture. Okay? And so you can go out and you can study God's word just as well as I can. Now, there's, an, there's a purpose for me, and I understand that. But my job is to equip you to, 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 so that you would do that. So that's my desire, is that, honestly, that you guys are feeding yourself. And that it's just kind of uh, a little bit off the, over the top when you come in on a Sunday, and that we're gathering together. And that maybe, honestly, when we have testimony time, you guys are popping up, men, that you're popping up because you have a word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, 
that the spirit of a prophet is subject to a prophet, and that that means me. That if I'm standing up and I'm sharing something, and God has given you the word, and that there's something that, that goes along with what we're talking about, you ought to be able to put up your hand, and I ought to say, I'll pick on Lawrence since you just walked in, right? And i say, what is it, Lawrence? And Lawrence says, well, man, you know, God has told me, and I sit down. That's what 1 Corinthians 14 says. It's not all about Bob. It's all about God. And so, but we need to be able to see by getting the anointment, the, oint, the ointment from Jesus Christ. And so I ask you, what are you using your, to use to anoint your eyes? Are you trusting in men? Or are you trusting in the Holy Spirit? Jesus says, get your eyes set from me. Quit trusting in men. Start trusting in, in me. And I will cause you to truly see. Now understand who he's talking to. He's talking to who? A church. He's not talking to a bunch of unbelievers. Okay, this is important to, to, to remember, okay? A lot of times we kind of think of this as being talking to unbelievers. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to a church. Okay? So it goes on. His promise to them is what? I will what? I will discipline as many as I, as I love. I will discipline as many as I love. Now how does he do that? Well, first of all, as many as I love, I what? I rebuke. A rebuke is a verbal admonishment. And so Jesus says, if I love you, if you are mine, if you're not an illegitimate child, if you're mine, and if you're walking in sin, then what am I going to do? I'm going to rebuke you. Now, you're the church of Laodicea. Your messenger, your minister, is coming back with this letter from John to you. And this is what Jesus has to say to you. What would you understand at this moment? I'm being rebuked. Go ahead, Matthew. Is that what you're going to say? Um, no, I thought I was going to say God doesn't like me. Yeah, well, well, he does. He loves me. He says, I will discipline what? As many as I, I love. Right? And so he says, as many as I love, I what? I rebuke. What's happening to the church right now? What are they receiving? A rebuke. <laughs> Jesus is rebuking them. And he's rebuking them harshly. He says, listen, I wish that you were like the water from Hierapolis or the water from Colossae. But you're not, man. You're like the water from Laodicea. It's, got, it's just pukey. It's bad. He says, I wish you were. He says, because you're not. But you're like this. I'm going to puke you out. I'm throwing you back out of my mouth. I'm going to spew you back out. Wow. I call it a rebuke. A verbal admonishment. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke. But he says, as many as I love, what? I chasten. Chastening is a physical adjustment. A physical adjustment. That sounds like you're going to a chiropractor, right? Well, in a sense it is. Because in a, what's going to happen is, physically you come and you seek to adjust somebody's what? Behavior or their, their character. And that's what Jesus says. He says, listen, if you will not listen to my verbal admonishment, you're going to force me to come and do what? Give you some physical adjustment. As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. If you are walking in sin, if you are lukewarm, 
your life, or us as a church, okay, we have to apply to a church, but we apply to us individually as well. If there is no medicinal nature about your words, if there is no refreshing nature about your words, remember what James chapter 2 says about the, the tongue, about that you can either pour out life, or you can pour out what? Death. You can either be a, a stream, a, a spring of sweet water, or a spring of bitter water. But a spring doesn't put out both sweet and bitter water. It doesn't put out both life and death. Which one are you? And so Jesus says, listen, you have got to repent and change. Otherwise, you're going to force me, in my love for you, to come and chasten you. He says, I will discipline you. Secondly, he says in his promise, I will fellowship with as many as respond to my call. Well, how do you get that? Jesus said to him, says, listen, I stand at the door and what? Knock. And what does he say? I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anybody, first of all, hears my voice, right? Here's my call. And then does what? Opens the door. Okay? So, think about it. There's a couple processes that are going on there. He doesn't just say open the door. But in order to open the door, you need to what? Hear the voice. Too many people don't hear the call to be able to respond to the call. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep what? They hear my voice. I know them and they, they follow me. Too many people claim to be sheep, but they don't know the shepherd's voice. Too many people are sitting inside the house and they don't hear the Savior call. This passage, though, in application does apply to evangelism. Primarily, it's not an evangelistic passage. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the church. If you would, almost, it's not this picture, because we're going to come talk about exactly what the picture is. But it's almost like Jesus coming this morning, and we got the door locked. And he's knocking out there, saying, hey guys, guys, let me in. But we're fat, dumb, and happy going on in here. We're singing our songs. In my heart there rings a melody, there rings a melody with heaven's harmony. And it's all exciting, isn't it? I love that song. It's really kind of a thrill. You know, and, and, and we, we sing all these fun songs, and we're really enjoying it. Because straight up, I mean, honestly, a lot of the hymns and songs that we sing, you're not listening to the words. I'm being judgment judgmental because I know that there's no temptation that's overtaken me but such is common to man so I know that there are some times when I sing those songs and they're fun songs and I'm really not thinking about the words that I'm singing even though they're sanctified words I'm not thinking about so I know you do that too okay so I'm I'm not just picking on you if I pick on you understand I'm picking on myself because I've really thought about this for myself and so really by application I'm slamming myself okay so we come in here and we sing these fun songs which are sanctified words but are we really thinking about what they're saying are we really worshiping the Lord God? When we sing um, songs of, of praise unto the Lord, are we singing just a fun song? Are we really having in our minds what the words are saying? When we're preaching and when we're teaching, are we gaining facts? A bunch of factoids. Or are we understanding of things, of how things Jesus Christ wants them to apply to our life? The question is, 
Is Jesus really in our midst? And is, is he in the midst of our fellowship, our oneness that's here? Is it really focused on Jesus Christ? John said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, of the word of life. That which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you, that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. These things write unto you, that we may have fellowship one with another. And truly our fellowship that we have with one another, if it's true fellowship, is going to come from what? Fellowship with the Father and the Son. And so, if we do not individually and as a body have fellowship with the Father and with the Son, we really don't have fellowship with one another. It's empty. And you know it's going to be empty because when you walk out the door, it what? It ends. It's, it's, a, it's a fellowship that happens right here. A lot of fun happening right here. But you know what? You can go to a rock concert, if you would, and have a lot of fun with a thousand other people who are there. You can, you can join hands and bounce with somebody that you didn't even know before because you're all wrapped up. Make sense? But when you walk out the door, what? It all ends. Jesus said, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. I just want in. Can, can I come in? You can almost picture the, the, the building, not the church, but the building, the facility that they're meeting in. And he's standing outside that Laodicean church saying, guys, can I just come in? Can I just be a part? It's supposed to be about me anyway, isn't it? Years ago, I went down on the river, down to the, um, the amphitheater, where there was a Promise Keepers rally. It was the beginning of the Promise Keepers ministries. And we had a rally in Augusta. This is years ago. And uh, it was bitter cold. I mean, I was wearing my big Eskimo parka and stuff like that. I tell you how cold it was down there. And we sang some songs. And it was preaching. And I can still tell you who preached. And it was a great message. I can tell you, tell you what the message was about. It was a really great message. But we sang, I can't remember what the hymn was. We sang this hymn. And it was really, it was great. It was, it was awesome. I mean, I really was focusing on the Lord. And I really had, coming right out of this hymn, we go into this drum roll. Now understand, I used to DJ years ago. I love a great drum roll. But what do you know about a drum roll? Does it focus, who's it focus attention on? The drummer, the drummist. And so, he's done with his drum roll and he gets up and everybody's high-fiving him. And I turn to the guys who were with me one of them was Devin. So he was, I've known Devin for a long time. And, um, and I turned to these guys and I said, who just got the glory? And so I asked myself, who was the song all about? What was the song? Why did we sing the song? And then we started singing this song called Jesus, which was just a mantra. Anybody know what a mantra is? What's a mantra? It's a, good. It's a chant. Just, it's a chant being stated over and over and over again. And the idea was that we were going to drive the evil spirits away. And so we just started singing Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I just cried. 
Now, Lord, you're using your name in vain, and they haven't got a clue. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is like a, a spell breaker. We're just going to say the name Jesus over and over again, and we're going to sing it. We've got to be careful, folks. Sometimes we just get into playing church, playing religion, and that's not what Jesus wants. Rather, Jesus wants what? Fellowship. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And if you just hear my voice and you come and open the door, I'm going to come in. And what does he literally say? I'm going to come and do what with you? I'm going to sup with you. Now, there are three Greek words for meals. There's the word for breakfast. There's a word for the noonday meal, which is kind of like a picnic. And so the breakfast at that time was a, it was a quick meal. It was just... Um, they didn't eat a big breakfast and everything. It was just a quick meal and they moved on with, lunch and, and with the day. And then they had this little picnic lunch because they would take to their work. And so they would just take a, just a little bitty thing that was kind of wrapped up. Um, not what we would picture as a, a, you know, a packed lunch, a picnic lunch. As Americans, we, we really overindulged too many times. But more like if you picture, um, have you ever seen Little House in the Prairie when Pa takes his lunch with him to the, uh, to the, to the, to the, to the wood mill? And he takes this piece of bread, and he wraps it in a little napkin, and that's his lunch. That's kind of the idea, okay? A little picnic lunch kind of thing, okay? But then they had this thing called supper, okay? Which, not they call it dip name, but it wasn't called supper but um, for their word. But it was the idea of a leisurely meal. It was the end of the day. The work was done, and now they could <coughs> relax. So they ate and they would have other people with them, and they would fellowship. They would spend time talking and enjoying the company. That's the word that Jesus says. Jesus says, if you open the door, I want to come in, and I want to recline with you, and eat with you. Now again, picture the words that Jesus said before, man does not live by bread alone, but every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. And so when Jesus comes in and he wants to sup with them, think about it. He wants to feed them as well. And he says, but all, you have to do what? you got to hear me. And you got to want me. And then you got to open it up. Some people hear, but they don't want Jesus says, I'm going to fellowship with as many as respond to my call. Jesus said, this is life eternal. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. There are two primary words in the Greek for know. There's the word oida, stands for factual knowledge. And there's the word gnosko, which stands for relational knowledge or intimate knowledge. Jesus says that eternal life is intimately knowing God. Do you know God? Do you really have fellowship with the Son? You may know a lot of factoids. You may even know that the things are true. For 23 years, I knew that Jesus was the Son of God. I knew that He died on the cross. I knew that He rose from the dead, and I knew that I was going to hell. Facts don't get you saved. 
the relationship gets you saved. It's trusting in those facts for your very being. Do you just have facts? Or do you have a relationship? Do you know them? Do you have fellowship with them? Jesus desires to have fellowship with you. Finally, he says, I will grant a seat on my throne to as many as overcome. To those who overcome, I will grant that they may sit with me on my throne. That just as I overcame, and my Father gave me the throne. We talked a few weeks ago how we are going to be able to reign with Christ in the, in the days to come. In the kingdom that, that comes, we will reign with Christ. But this is even more intimate than that. Jesus says, not that we're going to be given our own thrones, but rather, he's going to allow us to do what? Sit on his, with him. In conjunction with the, um, the pictures here of discipline and fellowship, I see a picture of, of relationship, of a father and his son. As many as I what? I love, I what? I discipline. Isn't that a kind of a father-son picture? If you just open up your heart to me, we could have sweet fellowship. We could spend a lot of time together. Doesn't it sound like a father-son to you? Years ago, God allowed me to see something. For me, don't write it in, in your Bible. It's not new revelation. I think it's consistent with revelation. As you see your dad growing up, so you see God. And my dad's coming in tomorrow. Um, and Lord willing, they'll be here next Sunday. Um, my dad's an ex-Marine sergeant. Still has got his crew cut. Some of you know him very well. And, and we had great discipline in my house. And I know now, I know now, okay? And so this may sound like a harsh statement toward my dad, and it's not. If my dad was here, I would share this, okay? I know my dad loves me. But I know, and, but I know my dad has changed over the years as well in the ability to express that love. Growing up, if you would have asked me if I, would have lo- if I loved my dad, I would have probably said yes, because that was the right answer. But the reality is I respected my dad. My dad was the disciplinarian. I know we did great, a lot of fun things together. I know that. I mean, I remember now, you know, you get older, you, get, you remember the younger times, and I remember the, the, snow, the, the snow forts with the snowball battles and stuff like that. And so I, I remember the fun times. So don't... I'm not being overly um, harsh here. But to me, my dad overall was the, the disciplinarian. My mom didn't spank. My dad spanked. We waited for my dad to come home to get what was coming. Moms, don't do that to your husbands. Don't, don't do that to the dad, okay? If, if you can handle it at home, handle it at home, okay? Don't make the first thing... That, when dad comes home to be a dreaded moment, okay? Because where do your father gets home? Kids aren't excited about seeing their dad anymore. Dad becomes the, the, the bad guy. Not that I want to make the, the wife the bad guy. I mean, you know, but, but 
that has to share. And so dads, when you come home, though, you have to what? You have to join with them in, in the, uh, the disciplinary process. But I saw my dad as the judge. And so therefore I saw God as what? The judge. And, I, and that's what God used to bring me to him. If I couldn't live to my own standards, I could never live to God's standards. And I realized that one night when I was 23 years old, that if I was to die right then, that I was going to hell. Because I had broken God's righteous standards. And he was my judge. And I remember struggling with that over the years. And I remember one night we were at a, um, a youth um, camp. We took three guys um, camping. And there was three adults with us. So there were six of us total. And the guy next door was playing some rock music. And it was just driving me bonkers. And I couldn't get to sleep. And Woody went over and had him turn it down. And he did. Woody was the, the pastor at the time. I was a youth pastor. And, um, and so... Um, so, everybody else is zonking away, but, you know, since I DJ'd, man, that stuff's just flooding through my brain, and I'm fighting it, and I'm, and I'm, at, you know, I'm starting to try to sing, you know, I decided to follow Jesus, and, you know, I have the child of weakness, watch and pray, and all these songs, and trying to just change what's going through my mind, you know, and, and I'm praying to the Lord, and I'm, I'm having this time, and while I'm praying and, and having this time, God allowed me to see this, this vision, if you would, this daydream, okay, and God was on his throne, high and lifted up, and some of you heard this before, but and while I watched that, that throne transformed into an easy chair and he was my judge but God said to me but I'm your Abba too come sit in my lap and I see this picture in that same light this isn't just a picture of just rolling and raining, though it's there but it's a picture of that communion that you can have with Jesus Christ. He is not just your judge. He's your brother. And God is your father. And the same God who sits in judgment, who has the DK, the righteous testimony and the righteous witness, is the same one who wants to have that fellowship with you. Who wants to be your Abba and wants you to come and sit on the, the throne with him. Do you get it? He loves you with an everlasting love. And you who have an ear to hear, let him hear. And so even though this letter to the Laodiceans may seem at first to be a letter of great um, rebuke, I think it closes with a great encouragement. And a great message of love. Here's what I really want with you. But you have to take your eyes off the world. And put them back upon me. And so, are you cold, hot, or lukewarm? What about Family Bible Church? How would Jesus describe us? Are we giving out medicinally the word of God to others? Are we refreshing to people? Or are we just kind of lukewarm, kind of playing the game? How would Christ assess our church? Are we seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? The treasures of the kingdom? Or are we seeking treasures here on earth? And finally, are you his child? How would you describe your fellowship with Jesus Christ? Is he your judge, pure and simple? Or is he your Abba?
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for your love. Lord, I thank you that you desire to have sweet fellowship with us. Father, forgive me and forgive us for the many times we turn away and we replace you with things that do not satisfy. Lord, I pray that you would be exalted in each of our lives. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to desire to be revived and restored, to be vibrant in our walk with you. Lord, I pray that as we transition into this time where we remember what you've done for us, where we proclaim that we have fellowship with you, Lord, that you will make an awareness to us the areas in which we are lacking and that we would confess them before you. Lord, that we would be restored. I encourage each of you to, to go before the Lord now and continue in prayer.